Thanks for listening to the Granary Church Podcast. For more information, head to granary.org.au or follow us on social media at The Granary Church. Good morning. My name's Naomi. And uh, disclaimer, that was definitely an emotional video for me. (laughs) And uh, it took me by surprise when I first saw it this morning. Um, And it's just very real to me, this revelation that women are uh, all around the world giving birth, um, potentially having non-sterile equipment being used in their labours. It's hitting, hitting home. I'm going to perch like this today if that's okay. And if I sound a little bit winded or out of breath partway through, don't worry. I got out of breath just putting my mascara on this morning. So it's completely normal. You don't need to worry. I'll be okay. (laughs) So this morning, proclaim freedom. What a beautiful promise that we have from God to walk in freedom and to bring freedom to others. And it's part of our mandate, part of our mission. It was part of Jesus's mission. And now it's been handed on to us. And so this morning, because this is the very start of our new teaching series on proclaiming freedom, I wanted to spend some time diving into Luke chapter 4, which is where we find this this, uh, phrase, proclaim freedom. Uh, And it's directly related to Jesus and his mission. And I just want to say before I start that there's two sides to this message for all of us, I believe. There's the freedom that God wants to bring into our lives, and then the freedom that he wants to bring into other people's lives through our testimony and through our ministry to them. So at all points uh, during this message, God might be talking to you about these, these two things at the same time, or he might just be highlighting one in particular. But I really do believe that freedom is something that's intensely personal that we uh, are you know, gifted with through his sacrifice, but it's also a mandate for us to bring freedom for others and a beautiful part of our Christian walk with Jesus to see that happen and affected in our life right here, this side of eternity. So before I get started, let me pray. Jesus, more of you, less of me. Would you come and speak to each of us this morning, reveal what it is that you want to do in our lives? Amen. Okay, so let's get started. In Luke chapter 4, please turn on your Bible or open it if you have an old school one. Luke chapter 4. Thank you, Edna, for laughing at that joke. Uh, Luke chapter 4, we're going to start with verse 14. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. He's returned there from his time in the desert being tempted by the devil. And he's in the power of the Spirit. News about him spread through the whole countryside. He taught in their synagogues and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth where he'd been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. And he stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. By sitting down, he was signalling that he was about to start teaching about this scripture he just read. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him and he began by saying to them, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him 
and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son? They asked. Let's stop there for a moment. Uh, Because this is the passage where we see really clearly a summary of Jesus' mission and mandate. The Spirit of the Lord is upon him. He is anointed for this work. He's commissioned for this work. And he's been sent to preach good news to the poor. He's been sent to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight to the blind. There is absolutely a social justice aspect to his mission. But this word freedom in the Greek that's translated here for us as freedom can also mean release, and where it appears in the rest of Luke's gospel is always in re- being translated as forgiveness, and it's used in relation to sin. Forgiveness of sin is the same as freedom from captivity. These two things are synonymous. And even though there's absolutely an element of social justice to Jesus' mission, because we see him going around healing the blind, raising the dead, restoring lepers so that they can become part of society again. He also begins by saying to people, declaring to them, your sins have been forgiven. And oftentimes this is what happens or occurs before any physical healing happens. Not always, mind you. This is not to say that forgiveness of sins is a prerequisite for experiencing the touch of God or a sign of wonder or a, sign of wonder or a healing or manifestation of some sort. There's no formula here for when... Uh, God breaks out supernaturally. But it was a priority of Jesus's to bring people into freedom from the weight of sin, shame and death. Jesus even taught that the type of slavery he was really focused on was because he taught that sin was what kept us in bondage. He said in John 8, 34, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. And even commentators say about this idea of Uh, recovery of sight for the blind, although we see that Jesus does heal a lot of blind people, it's actually a metaphor used as a metaphor a lot throughout Jesus' ministry about spiritual blindness, not just physical blindness. He calls the Pharisees blind all the time and he calls himself the light. He describes himself as being the light that brings us out of our spiritual darkness. I think that this priority that Jesus gives to this spiritual aspect of captivity rather than physical forms of slavery and oppression is something we should be mindful of, something we should aim to pursue in our own lives and the lives of others. We shouldn't just be like, I mean, don't get me wrong, signs and wonders are incredible to experience and behold, but the internal transformation and the freedom from the weight of sin, shame and death is the miracle we should be pursuing in our lives and in the lives of others because it is something that will bring transformation to people's lives. Because we see a few examples throughout the Gospels where people experience a healing touch of God but then don't have any inner transformation occur. If you really want to see somebody walk in freedom, I think the priority needs to be pursuing this freedom from sin. And this is the synonymous with forgiveness. And it's the power of forgiveness that sets us free from this weight. Forgiveness for us that we receive from God, the forgiveness we can impart to others by releasing and forgiving them for the wrongs they do to us, and also the freedom that we can sh- the freedom we then get to share with people the good news that God does this for us that He is Jesus made the sacrifice, which is what we were celebrating last week, and now we can be free. Let's add that verb proclaim to this concept of freedom and release. 
When we as a church say that one of our core values is to proclaim freedom, we don't mean that we're people who simply declare over and over, I'm free, I'm free, I'm free, I'm free, you're free, you're free, I'm free. It's not about a mantra. It's actually freedom does not come from meditating on the promises of the scriptures. Freedom doesn't come by being mindful of Jesus' sacrifice as we go about our day. Freedom doesn't come from rewriting our brains just by repeating the promises of God. While all these things are good and useful and helpful, freedom from the yoke of sin is attained supernaturally and only through Jesus because of his sacrifice for us. If I were to rock up at a prison and declare to the prison warden, this inmate here is free, he must be released, the prison warden wouldn't do a thing about it. Even if I was persuasive, charismatic, dogmatic, persistent, repetitive, even if I refused to go away. But if I showed up at a prison carrying a message on behalf of the king, the prime minister, the governor, whoever it is in that land who has the authority to release prisoners, the prison warden would have to listen to the declaration I make. I wouldn't have to repeat it. I wouldn't even have to maybe be eloquent in how I transmit the message because it's about the authority that backs my proclamation of freedom. In the same way, when we say as a church that we have a mandate to proclaim freedom, we don't mean that we're repeating words over and over, hoping that they'll work this time. We may need at times to be reminded of the promises of the Lord and we absolutely should be committing scripture to memory. These are all good things which do require some repetition of the promises. That's not what I'm saying. But to attain freedom from our flesh desires, freedom from the heaviness of our sin and shame and freedom from death, it's not something that can be accomplished through our own efforts. So my first point is freedom is something that can only come from Jesus. In John 8, 36, Jesus himself declares, if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. And this is a great promise. I love this one. You will be free indeed. This is something we should all commit to memory because it's something you will need to remind yourself of because, as Paul says, we need to guard against. In Galatians 5, 1, he says, guard against being burdened again by the yoke of slavery. Definitely serves us to be reminded of these things. But to actually achieve freedom, we need the first part of that statement. The sun sets you free. Let's move on to verse 23. So we're still in Luke 4, verse 23. Jesus said to them, surely you will quote this proverb to me, physician, heal yourself. Do here in your hometown what we have heard that you did in Capernaum. At this point in Luke's gospel, Jesus hasn't been to Capernaum. He doesn't uh, give us any account of what might might have happened there. Uh, But we know from other Gospels that he did. He was in Capernaum and he was doing amazing miracles and word about him had already spread. When Mark tells the story of Jesus coming to his hometown, he's telling the story from the point of view that there's already been miracles happening. And when he gets to his hometown, it's recorded in verse 5 that Jesus could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. And he was amazed at their lack of faith. This doesn't mean that their lack of faith is what prevented Jesus being able to do miracles because that would imply that the strength of Jesus' power is dependent on the strength of our faith. 
But the strength of Jesus' power to work supernaturally in, in our lives is not dependent on the strength of our faith. I've preached before about the idea that faith is actually one of the spirit, like a spiritual gift that we can pray for, a gift of something that we receive rather than being something that we have to manufacture or build up by our own efforts. And just to add to that idea, I want to point out that when Mark says that Jesus could not perform any mighty works, he isn't using it in the same way that we might today. My two-year-old son, one of his first phrases was, I can't. But that's not the way that Jesus means it. When, he's, when my two-year-old says that, he really can't put on his shoes by himself. He's right. But that's not what Mark is saying here. Mark isn't suggesting that the Lord was incapacitated in some way. The New Testament scholar William Lane makes clear in his commentary on Mark that could not is one of principle more than power. What he means by that is that working miracles in the absence of faith is impossible because it directly contradicts Christ's message. In addition, when we see that Jesus makes this decision to move on to another area later on, like he doesn't persist in trying to change their minds. He doesn't persist in attempting to have them believe on him or be open to him, rather, enough to allow him to actually do signs and wonders in their midst. They don't accept him and he's okay with that. And this is a key characteristic of Christ that uh, I really think it's important for us to model in our own lives, to embody. In the face of disbelief, in the face of what becomes outright hostility, as we'll see in the rest of Luke, Jesus chose not to prove himself to them. Now, if I were in his shoes, I would have been tempted to do the opposite. I would have wanted to go all out and put on the biggest show possible just to prove who Jesus is. And in fact, sometimes when I've been praying uh, publicly for big things, miracles in people's lives, or you're just, you know, you're trying to, you're really, really stepping out, taking a big step of faith, it's risky praying this because it's out of your control if God answers your prayer or not. I get anxious about whether or not God will show up. Sometimes if I really feel like God's taken me to this place, given me a prophetic word and it's, it's all up to him, I still get anxious. And it's not for my own sake. It's actually for the sake of God's reputation. I get nervous on behalf of God. But who are we to worry or be insecure about God's image if Jesus didn't even worry about it and he was not insecure about it? Perhaps onlookers might look at us at times and say, well, you declared this about God or declared he would do it and I didn't see any evidence of it. And then start to call us flaky or false in some way. I don't think this should stop us from declaring the true nature of God or his will or his intent or the true extent to which we can experience freedom. The key to coming in authority so as to make sure that we're actually declaring freedom and not just our own intentions is to do what Jesus told his followers that he did. He only did what he saw the Father doing. He only said what he heard the Father saying. And one of those things that the father said was, you are my son whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. And he said that to Jesus when Jesus was baptised. Before he even began his ministry, he had the full approval of the father for that ministry. Sometimes you may be sent in the authority of Christ to speak release and freedom to people and they still won't respond and you won't, they won't experience any transformation just be reminded that Jesus experienced the same. 
but because he was so rooted in love and approval of the Father, that freed him from his need to have the approval and respect of others. So my point is this. Acceptance and approval of your message and your ministry is not the watermark test of whether or not you are in alignment with God's message and ministry. Remember, even Jesus was rejected. We need some other kind of test for whether or not we're in alignment with God. That's a whole other teaching series. (laughs) But it's not whether or not you're accepted. It's not whether or not somebody else experiences freedom and transformation because of the word that you brought because they have that free will choice the same way that we do. And God doesn't control that just the same way he doesn't try to control us in how we respond to him. There's a challenge here for us as individuals though. If we don't lay down our agendas and accept Jesus fully, then we're also at risk of missing out on the transformation and blessing that comes from receiving freedom and release from our sins. If we want just the manifestation of the freedom and we're not willing to actually lay down that part of us that still loves to be in control, we're not going to attain that full measure of freedom. Let's read verses 24 to 27. I tell you the truth, he continued. No prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. What is the point of Jesus retelling these rather famous stories? They would have been known to his listeners but he is retelling them rephrasing them here to really emphasize the point that while Israel was suffering God sent his faithful prophet to a Gentile widow an outsider who had no claim at that point on the blessings of God the blessings that God had like declared for his people to reinforce this point he then tells a second story about Elisha healing not just any old Gentile leper, but actually somebody who was a very successful military commander of an enemy army that later lays siege to the city where he's healed. If the point of these stories was to rile up his listeners, he was successful. We read in verse 28, all the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of town and took him to the brow of a hill on which the town was built in order to throw him down the cliff but he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. He actually does this several times through scripture. Just It says it's recorded that he walked on his way, just went through the crowd or he slipped through their hands or he just disappeared in some way. And when I was a child, I really thought Jesus was like a ninja. Just the number of times he could disappear (laughs) in the middle of an angry mob. Certainly miraculous. Probably not because he's a ninja. It's because it wasn't his time. Jesus' audience here has gone from wonder and amazement to violent fury. And still we're left with this question of why. Why did he tell these stories, these well-known stories, in such a provocative way? Commentators suggest that Jesus told these stories as a warning to these people, preempting a stumbling block that would come for this community that was specifically targeting their dislike of uh, outsiders, particularly the Roman rule. Apparently there was a Roman... Uh, station command centre really close, like a couple miles away from this uh, township. I think these stories serve us today 
by reminding us that no one is exempt from God's love and no one group of people is eligible to receive a greater portion at the exclusion of others. Israel was called in the Old Testament to be a nation set apart to be God's chosen people, but it was never God's intent for them to receive his blessings at the exclusion of other people groups. And indeed, Jesus repeatedly demonstrates this through his ministry, his teachings and his parables. And then the early church took this good news and went out actively teaching that God shows no partiality to different people groups, that this message is available for everyone. But we as humans are primed to show partiality. We're really good at it. Part of how we form connections with one another is to find the things that we share, that we have in common, to find like-minded people. Uh, and often we go to the extra length of not just finding people who we share things with, but that we share things with people that we then don't share actively, don't share with other people. And we form our groups and our bonds and these identities of these communities on the basis of we have this in common, which they don't have. We could just stop it, we have this in common, <laughs> but we don't. And often strong bonds are formed this way, and this is what gives rise to racism in society today. And although God has a huge value for the uniqueness of different cultures, he does not pour out his favour on one group to the exclusion of others. This story then serves to remind us that we should be aware of our own tendencies and prejudices in proclaiming freedom we may be tended, tending or tempted to proclaim freedom to some and not to others. In particular, I think we can develop this if we as an individual have areas of our lives where we've never experienced bondage to certain types of sins or if we're not comfortable with coexisting alongside somebody who is struggling in an area that we've never struggled with. Or perhaps when we consider one sin more serious than another. And so when we're given the opportunity to minister to somebody, rather than really relying on what God is saying he's doing in their life, we want to go over the, after the obvious thing, the thing that stands out to us as an issue, rather than really seeking God's heart for that individual and what it is that he's already at work doing in their life. By the same token, we can get easily offended when we see what we might perceive to be God favouring somebody else instead of us. Perhaps you've had a prayer that you've been petitioning God for on behalf of yourself or your family and you meet somebody who's had that prayer, you've been waiting for years and you meet somebody who's had that prayer answered instantly. It can really offend us, it can really get us disappointed in God. Or perhaps you see God pouring out favour on somebody and you know the secret workings of their life and you know they don't deserve that. None of us deserve it. We all have the secret areas of our life that we are still bringing into alignment and submission to God. There's still areas where we're working out our salvation, where we're still seeking his freedom. Matt and Britt Darvis actually preached the other week that we are easily offended by God's justice. It does not work to the same paradigm as ours. And this story serves to remind us of that. When we choose to follow the way of Jesus, to take up his mission here on earth, to proclaim freedom, we might not always be satisfied by our own, like it won't satisfy our own sense of justice. It won't always seem fair. And at times it might offend us or it might offend the people that we're bringing the message to. And if we aren't careful, this offence could cause us to 
uh, be distant from God or to prophesy our intentions over people rather than carrying the message that is backed by the authority of Christ and really bringing freedom. So my final point is this. The mission of Jesus did and still does challenge all other interests and agendas. And if we are still waiting to see freedom in an area of our life or freedom on behalf of somebody dear to us or close to us and we've been declaring it and we've been praying it and we've been petitioning God for it, my challenge to you today would be is there an area, an interest or an agenda that you have that you have not yet surrendered to God? And are you willing to ask him what it is that he wants to do in this area, whether it be in your own life or the life of somebody you know? And then pray into that. If he brings something to mind, if he reveals it to you, pray into that. Rather than your, our own hearts can easily align to God, but that does not mean that we're necessarily actually in tune with what he's doing in the moment. And I have a story I want to share about this. Uh, it occurred when I was in India on a mission trip with my husband. We took some of the youth from here, the granary, with us. We won't be doing that again. No, <laughs> it was an amazing trip. It was a hard trip, but it was a great trip. And before we left, we really had it on our hearts that we would see a miracle. It was just something God put on my heart. He built up this faith for it. And then the faith spread throughout the team. And we just kind of had this expectation. I can't explain it any other way other than it was just a spiritual thing of just that we would see a miracle. And we got to the very last weekend of our trip and we hadn't seen a miracle yet. And then we visited uh, a, a community, a slum community. We've got, I've got a photo of it here. And these are people who are undocumented. They're known as the untouchables in some circles because they... They don't have any documentation. They're not registered in any way as Indians, as citizens, as people who can access healthcare or um, access education or anything. Uh, it's a predominantly Hindu community and the local church does outreach into this community. And we went along with them. And it was here that we met this little girl. This is Kira Spencer, some of you might know her, holding this little girl who had club feet and who would never walk. She's been born into the hardest of circumstances and then compiling on top of that is this profound uh, disability that, um, I mean, she's, I think she was way older than she looks. She was like five or six years old and, and she just didn't look at it at all. And our hearts completely broke for this little girl. We were, um, spent days interceding for this girl. We couldn't get it off our hearts and we couldn't let go of it. I think it was about three days we spent interceding. But the thing was that even though we were completely convinced that God would do a miracle, we then took it upon ourselves that this, this was the miracle he was going to do. We were going to see her feet straightened and her legs strengthened. We were going to see a brighter future for her. And we almost missed, because of how fixated we were on that, we almost missed what God was doing. And what God was doing was something with this man. This is Pulia. While we were having our hearts broken for that little girl, one of our team members, Dave Brennan, who's here today, actually had a word of knowledge for this man, Pulia. Now, Pulia is the head of this community. He's the leader of this community. And he had been sick and unable to work. And so Dave asked, can I 
pray for you? And he actually said yes, because he'd been on a journey with Varma, our translator, for months. He'd been softening for months. His heart towards God was, had been softening for a long time, not that Dave would have known that. And Dave had this very specific word of knowledge to lay his hand on the arm of this man, on his tricep, and pray for healing in this place. And this man stopped at that point and said through our translator, does God speak to men? He couldn't believe, he's like, I didn't tell him where the pain was. I didn't tell him anything. And later that night, Polia rode his motorbike into the church grounds, waving his arm around. Up until that point, he hadn't been able to lift it. He hadn't been able to work. It was basically wasting away. And he rode in pain-free, all mobility restored, all of his strength. And then when we returned three days later, hoping and hoping and hoping to see this little girl's feet restored and her legs able to, to walk, what actually happened that day was that Dave challenged this man to give his life to the Lord, and he did. He renounced Hinduism. He accepted Jesus. His second-in-command who witnessed it all did the same. And the entire atmosphere of this community changed in that one moment. They started taking off the talismans they put around their children's necks to protect them. A whole community of Christians who live in this slum but are like the lowest of the low, they're completely um, segregated from their Hindu uh, neighbours started coming out of the woodworks. We didn't even know they were there. The whole community was transformed. Now, I really believe that God gave us a faith for this little girl and he did answer our prayers, but he didn't give us faith for the entire community to be transformed. So we were just praying for this one little girl that she would have a brighter future. And you know what? God answered that prayer because he brought change to that entire community. But at the time, we didn't have the faith for that. He went above and beyond what it was. Our prayers didn't limit him. Our prayers limited by our own imagination didn't actually stop him from bringing transformational change to an entire community and not just to one little girl. So I want to challenge you today. If there's an area of freedom that you're longing to have in your own life or that you have been seeking God on behalf of somebody you love, somebody you're close to, and you've been praying and you've been declaring freedom for them and, and you're not seeing change, would you surrender that to Jesus afresh today? Would you invite the Holy Spirit to reveal to you how you can pray for that person or how you can seek that freedom in your life, what it is that's holding you back from surrender or what it is that he's actually doing in the life of that person you love? Why don't you take a moment now to ask him 